Welcome to Murray Hills this morning. Glad to see everybody in the room, and we want to welcome our Spring Hill campus. And we want to welcome everybody that's watching online today, YouTube or Facebook. Thank you for being part of our Murray Hills family. we got something special planned today. So we're in between series. The new series starts next Sunday. It's called Deadly Invitations. It's an emotional health series. It is about the things that we actually invite into our lives. We willingly welcome these things into our lives. Some of them seem harmless, but they have the power to threaten our very lives. And so we'll talk kind of what that is. That's the, it's kind of the setup analogy for it, deadly invitations, and that starts next Sunday. This Sunday, I've got Ebony Lovely with me, our Spring Hill campus pastor, and she's going to be joining me on stage for a conversation. And before she gets up here, I want to say just a, a word or two, because I was with Spring Hill last Sunday, and I said this to Ebony privately in our staff meeting. I want to say it publicly to, to you in Columbia and to those of you in Spring Hill. Um, it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, it, it was so good to be with the Spring Hill campus, and I think Ebony has done a fantastic job leading that transition and leading that campus. It felt like home last Sunday. That's what it felt like. The songs that Tiffany chose were the songs that we sing here in Columbia and the communion. Sandra did such a great job with communion and the atmosphere and the kids running around and you know they started at 1035 even though the schedule says 1030 and I'm like that's Murray Hills. That's what we do. We start my schedule says 930. We start 935. Everybody knows that. So it just it was awesome and I think Ebony's doing an incredible job there and I want to say publicly thank you to her and I want yeah you can applaud. And I, I hope you just applauded in Spring Hill, too, because she'll know if you didn't. Uh, word will get back. But I want you to welcome her to the stage. So applaud one more time. She's going to come up and join me on the stage. Oh. Here's your microphone. All right. The, we came up with this idea. You see the screen behind me here what our conversation is about today but uh we put this on the schedule probably three or four months ago and i, I use the term we loosely <laughs> uh i think i might come up with the idea and said hey do you mind doing it and yeah, that's exactly what happened. you agreed um <laughs> it, this is the first sunday of black history month mm -hmm. and so i was thinking you know let's talk about that let's talk about black history let's talk about you know why it's important to remember the, the full story of our history, because so many times when history is told, it's only told from one perspective, and we don't hear the full story. And so the title of the message was, Why We Remember, and we were just going to talk history. Yeah. And then as we got to working on this message, it, it evolved and it expanded a little bit, and we changed the title to An Honest Conversation About Race. So we're not going to just talk history, we're going to talk present, mm -hmm. and that's, that's a little more challenging yes. to do. And uh, we've talked every day this week about this message so yeah. we talked you know every day this week we've talked and yesterday we talked and I'm like how you feeling and she's like a little nervous and uh, I'm a little nervous too uh, it's one thing to have this conversation with just you and I if we were just sitting in a coffee shop having a conversation it's one thing to do that it's another thing to do it in front of a bunch of people and uh and in front of an online audience that we don't know who's watching online right now. Um, so, you know, we're glad they're watching, but it's, it's just nerve-wracking. And so you said, it might be good if we started with prayer. And so let's do that. We're going to start with prayer. I'm going to start it, and you can, you can finish it, okay? So let's pray. 
Oh, Father, I'm, uh, I just asked for some, we've done this once already, you know, we did it in the first service, but uh, we're having a conversation, and it's different, uh, we're not just repeating things, uh, we're talking, and so I want to ask that you help calm my nerves, calm Ebony's nerves as we talk about these things, I'm thankful that this is a safe place to, to have honest and, and real conversations, and I just want to thank you for Ebony um, and her willingness to participate in this conversation. Lord, I just ask that um, you will soften hearts um, to have empathy for the stories or experiences they may hear this morning, and I ask that ears will be open to truly listen, um, that you will just uh, begin to continue to change the narrative of Murray Hills being a um, diverse community where not only people are seen, but people are understood for their stories. And I thank you for this time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Uh, I want to I start with a card I picked up when I was in, in Spring Hill. We've got these invite cards out at the coffee station in the lobby at uh, Spring Hill High School. And on the front side, it just says, you belong here. And then on the back, it lists, you know, the service times and where we meet and some of the things that make Spring Hill, Murray Hill, Spring Hill so special. And so it talks about the casual atmosphere and the friendly environment and the great kids program and I picked it up because I saw uh, the phrase radically diverse community. And honestly, the first two or three times I read this card, I thought it said racially diverse community because I just kind of skipped over and I didn't see the word radical. But I think that's, that is what we're talking about. It could have said racially diverse community and that would have been fine because that's what we're talking about when we say diverse community. And um, Spring Hill campus is a little further down the road than we are in the Columbia campus on creating that. But it is a core value of both campuses. Like we've, the last four or five years, we've tried to be much more intentional about creating racial diversity within our church. And I just wanted to start with, why do you think that's important? Wow, okay. Before we jump in, I do want to say a couple things. I want to say thank you for your affirmation of what's going on at Spring Hill. It definitely means a lot to me. And I also want to say good morning to my Spring Hill family. It's always um, sad for me to, be, to not be with you, but I'm so excited that you guys get to um, listen in on this conversation that we're about to have this morning. Um, I also want to acknowledge that the conversation that Russ and I are having this morning is very rare. There are not many churches that are doing what we're doing um, this morning, um, so you have the privilege and honor to listen in to our conversation. And also, a lot of churches across the country are being very intentional about making sure their staff is diverse. They're, you know, hiring minorities, which I think is great. A lot of those churches, unfortunately, don't hire minorities in higher leadership positions, if you've noticed. And they definitely are not having the type of conversations that you and I are having this morning about what it really means um, to be black in America. So why are you and I sitting here, a, a, a white male and an African-American female, leading a church together and having this honest conversation? How did we get here? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to answer the question with a story and a verse. And then I want you to answer the question because you didn't answer it. Uh, but that's okay. <laughs> no, Strategic. I want, I want a story and a verse real quick. The story is simply this. Um, you know, we've done a movie series here for uh, 10, 10 years or so. I, every summer I pick some movies out and we talk about the themes. And for the last seven or eight years, I've always included one film that dealt with race. And, and it's, you know, we've, there's been a lot released. And so uh, 2015, I included the movie Selma, which everybody should see. Um, so I, I, I picked out that movie, and I had this idea, and I reached out to, a, to an African-American preacher who doesn't live in this area, 
And I thought, hey, we're going to, you know, explain the whole concept to him. We're doing this movie series. We're talking Selma. Would you be willing to, like, join me via Skype or something and just talk to the church about race in America? Just, you know, I mean, would you be willing to just kind of let me interview you or do something like that? And um, he said, no. Uh, <laughs> he said, I- I'm not going to go talk to another white congregation about racism in America when you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. And not the answer I was expecting. You know, it kind of took me back a little bit, and I was kind of, you know, stunned for a minute. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he said, "Um, until you're willing to to learn yourself and kind of find out what the African-American experience is like, um, I don't think it would be fruitful for us to have a conversation because we're kind of talking past each other. You're not going to have any understanding of what I'm talking about. And I told him, I am willing to learn. You know, what do I need to do? He said, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. He said, you read the book, uh, The New Jim Crow, and you call me back and we'll talk. And so I did. It's a pretty thick book. Um, it's called, uh, the subtitle's Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And so I read the book, took me two or three months, and I called him back, and we had a, a really good conversation. And so that book, I kind of look at that as kind of like the beginning of a little bit of a journey of trying to get more understanding of African-American experience. And that conversation was a part of that, and then I asked him for more books, and um, he gave me more books to read. And so what I discovered through that was I, I didn't know what I was talking about. And uh, it's, it's one thing to say, hey, everybody's welcome here. You know, we don't, we don't, everybody can come here. It doesn't matter. You know, that's not diversity. You have to be more intentional than that if you want to be diverse. And so that was the, that's been a continuing journey for me, and I'm still on it. The verse is uh, Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 28. Uh, Paul, speaking to a very diverse church in Galatia, said, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ and then he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor free male nor female for you're all one in Christ Jesus and what he's saying is is you know we are all one we are all created in the image of God um, we are all part of the same family regardless of distinctions with our ethnicity or our gender or our social class, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so a lot of times I answer that question of, you know, I think the church should be diverse because the church should reflect the community around it. If we're not reflecting the community around it, then um, we're not really being who we're called to be. But really it's more than that. The church should be diverse because that's what God calls us to be. God calls us to be diverse. And so we're not reflecting the full reality of his kingdom, which includes everyone. So that's that's my short answer. That was a great answer. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> um, why do you think, though? Why, why do you think it's so important to have diversity within a church? I mean, very similar to what you said. It is something that God calls us to. He commands us to it. Before Jesus was crucified on the cross, he gave us a new commandment. And the, a commandment is an authoritative order. And John chapter 13, verse 34 says this. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And as I read that verse, thinking about our conversation this morning, um, I just realized it's, it's not what we're doing. Why, why is what we're doing as a church when it comes to black and white issues not equal to this command that God gave us? And I realized it's because 
we have watered down the word love into the word tolerate. And so um, if I read this verse according to um, what we're doing as a church today for majority of us, it will read this way. It will say, a new command I give you, tolerate one another as I have tolerated you. So also you must tolerate one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you tolerate one another. And so many times as I was planning this, um, as we're talking through this discussion this week, I, there were so many times I wanted to pull back and not read that verse that way, but it is completely honest um, to the narrative of what is going on with black and white issues, um, not only in the community specifically, but specifically in the church as well. And, um, you know, it's just, it's easier for white churches to, and black churches to do church separately because it's just less messy. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's not hard like the conversation that we're having today. It doesn't take bravery. Um, and it creates safe places there. And so I am so excited to be a part of a church um, that knows and understands that love is truly seeing um, each other um, and in our own skin and understanding that because of the color of someone's skin, that their experience in America today is completely different than your own. Yeah. The, uh, and love, love has a higher calling on our lives than tolerance. Like, I mean, our culture yeah. celebrates tolerance, and that's what we're called. To, like, that's a high value, but um, there's a big difference between loving someone and tolerating someone. So, that, I mean, that's a whole other message in and of itself. Um, you, I want you to talk about the experiences, because you just said our experiences are different. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing the African-American preacher said to me five years ago. Our experiences are different, yeah. and you need to understand that. Um, I want you to talk about your experiences, but first got to ask another question. And this goes back to Tuesday. Uh, we first started putting this message together on Tuesday, and it was a lead team meeting with, with you and I and Tim were in the room, and we were talking about what we are going to say. And I told you, I want you to share your experience. I, share, I want you to share your story with the church. Mm -hmm. And um, you got emotional mm -hmm. about that. And through tears, you said, it's not always safe for me to do that. It's not always safe. And I want you to kind of, I'm bringing that to this conversation. Why did you... Why did you get emotional about it? But why did you feel that way, that it's not always safe? Um, because it's not always safe. Um, a lot of times, uh, African-Americans have, um, there are always consequences. When we're asked to tell our story, um, it's, there's always a tension there because it's how, how honest can we be? Um, we have to kind of filter what we say. We can't say certain words. We're always afraid that someone's going to be afraid or that we're, our experiences are going to be dismissed. Um, and so there's always um, tension that are we, are we really allowed to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, and there's always the fear that we have to work so hard to have a seat at the table. And there's always the fear that if we say too much, then our seat will be removed. Yeah. So, so it, it's not safe. Even if I tell you it's safe, there's, there's a history there to where it hasn't always been yeah. safe. History and, and current as well. And current as well, because, yeah, because here's, I'm going to piece all this together for you. You said that on Tuesday, and, um, and I respected what you said, but I'm not sure I understood what you said. Why is it, you know, like, why, why is it not safe? This is, this is Murray Hills. Yeah. This is safe. And it was 2020. It's safe for African Americans to tell their stories. Um, just a day or two after you said that in that meeting, I opened up social media and saw my alma mater in the news, uh, Lipscomb University is where I graduated from. And um, it's where our kids go to, you know, summer camp and all that kind of stuff. And this was about the lower, lower campus. This was about their secondary school. They had hired in August a dean of intercultural development. 
and um, I, I, I applauded the move. That was, I saw the press release when they hired her. It was a good move for the school because she's saying, like, we have to prepare our students for a, a very diverse world. Like, we've got, they've got to be prepared for this. So I'm like, hey, if anybody ought to be having these conversations, it's the church. You know, it's a Christian community. And so Lipscomb was diving into those conversations. So they, her name's uh, Brittany Pachelle. And they invited her to have a seat at the table. Uh, they started having some of these conversations at the school. And there was an essay that was assigned. She didn't assign it. A white teacher assigned it. But it uh, involved the P word, I say. Uh, and I'm scared to say it because it's such a controversial word now. Privilege is what the, the, the students were asked to write about privilege and how they viewed privilege and race and that kind of thing. And that's a really controversial word it's become politically charged word and when you say that word that there are some white folks that take offense to that and I don't know why I don't know if it's a guilt or if it's a just because it's politicized or what but I've used it in a sermon before and I heard about it uh, after it was over by a few people I heard about it um, when Lipscomb used it they heard about it and some parents got upset about it some parents that had money some parents that had influence, and ironically, some parents that had privilege, heard about it, got upset. There's all these town hall meetings. Um, the head of school recently resigned this week. That happened this week. And there were some people calling for Peschel to be dismissed or, you know, administrators apologizing for hiring her, in essence, is some of what's happening. And the irony, the whole situation as I'm watching this, one, it gave context for me to understand why you say it's not safe. Here's an African-American lady is invited to have a seat at the table. She shared her story. Some people got uncomfortable with her story, and now it's in, people reacted. There were consequences for her sharing her story. But the irony of it was the, the reaction to the assignment shows why the assignment was needed. Like, I mean, that's, that's, why we need to have, that's why we need to have conversations and engage and talk about it. I mean, it's okay to use the word privilege and talk about that, even if we don't agree totally on what it means, just to talk about it and why we feel the way we feel and think the way we think. And, um, but there's consequences. And, it's a, and I don't know everything about what happened there. I'm, you know, I just know what I've read in the paper, but it seems to be a real sad situation where some people with influence and, and power tried to shut down a minority voice. And it's, I, I see what you're talking about. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. Um, when I was reading that story as well, I uh, noticed last fall when they hired her, I don't know um, Dean Paschel personally, but I was so excited for Lipscomb like you were, that they were making progress, yeah. um, that they realized diversity, mean, you do have to be educated, educated as well when you're t working on diversity. And um, as I was reading through the article and what was happening, I felt for her as in, she's also an African-American female, and I just couldn't imagine being in that um, situation for her. And so I was reading just to see how Lipscomb was responding on her behalf. And when I read this week that they had recanted everything they said in this amazing article for her um, that they wrote about her last week, I was just heartbroken for her. I can't imagine um, what it's like being in her position because a lot of times um, the African-Americans that are brave enough to step into the predominantly white circles and tell their story, mm -hmm. they're often the first ones that are knocked off the pedestal when the pressure gets hard. Um, and so I, I pray that Lipscomb will use this um, as what seems like a setback in their progress with diversity. They will use it to just make strides forward in the right direction. Yeah, and it's it's just an example. I mean, here we, I mean, this just happened the week we had planned this conversation. It's this these issues about race are not history. They're not historical conversations we're having. They're current conversations we're having. And 
uh, our country and our communities and our churches are trying to figure this out, and we're not doing a real good job in, in a lot of ways of figuring it out. Um, but the, the reason that that situation adds a lot more weight to this next question I'm going to ask you, and it's why what you're doing up here is, is very brave. Um, because even if I tell you, you know, now you, you can trust me, this is a safe place. There's still a little bit of fear. If I tell my story and people don't like it, what happens? And I, that's why I, I hesitate to ask you this question because I know how hard it was for you to answer in the first service. Um, would you be willing to share some of your story with us, some of your experiences as an African-American in the church and community? Sure. Um, the first story I'm going to tell is the first time that I realized that being black was different, and I was eight years old. I'm going to cry again. Jeez. Thanks for the box of tissues. You guys know me. Um, so I was eight years old, and my family and I moved into a predominantly white neighborhood in Delaware. And it was a beautiful neighborhood, a wonderful home. And then I he overheard my parents having a conversation saying that some of their friends um, told them that some of our white neighbors uh, were asking if my parents were drug dealers. And I was so confused. I was like, my parents are so kind and gentle. They, they're not hard, you know, they're not. They're too, way too soft to be drug dealers. And I didn't understand what the, you know, I was like, I don't understand. Why would they even assume that? And that day is when I learned what racism is. And that is assuming that someone is inferior to you because of the color of your skin. And so um, that day my eyes were open to, um, to realizing and understanding and knowing that um, my, um, my experiences in life would be different just because of the color of my skin. Um, my second experience I will share with you is being an African-American mama. And I'm going to grab a tissue because I feel the tears coming. Um, having to explain to my children, um, when I teach them, we're very intentional about teaching them about black history. And having to explain to them about slavery and lynchings and segregation and the civil rights movement. And... Um, explaining to them that this, these are things that their ancestors experienced. We're not talking about something that happened in somewhere else really far away. These are their people. And then having to look into their sweet little innocent eyes when they ask me why. Why would somebody that doesn't look like me treat our people that way? It just doesn't make sense. And hate is unexplainable. I can't explain to you why these things happen to our people. And then also having to continue that conversation and tell them, even today in 2020, because you are brown, you will have to work harder. Sorry. You will always have to be polite and use your manners because there are some people who still view you differently because of the color of your skin. Um, another experience um, is a few years ago, I got one of those super fun DNA kits to, for Christmas to um, research my heritage and just kind of see where I was from. And um, reading through my, the documents of my ancestors, I came across a... Um, a document of a distant uncle, and um, his name was listed on property records as a slave next to cattle and furniture. And um, my heart broke for him. It was a rough day. I couldn't imagine what it was like to be him, um, to not have rights um, to your own self, but to be actually someone's taxed property and equal to uh, things, and realizing that his story was only one of many 
Um, and so my heart broke for my people that day. And then as I continued to do research, I found um, a story of my eighth great aunt who had to file a lawsuit against her slave owner to prove that her children were his because he was denying them. And um, to just understand the humiliation of what that had to be for her and knowing that most likely it wasn't her choice to have his children in the first place. Um, and then also seeing her name on two different um, property records of two different slave owners and just realizing the weight of what it must have been um, for them to be, to live in America. Um, as a minority um, today, um, I am, as an African-American female, most places I go, um, sometimes I'm the only one and sometimes there are very few um, other people that look like me. And so sometimes it makes me feel two different ways. Either I stand out or it makes me feel invisible. Um, and so I want to encourage you as a church that is working on diversity, if you see someone that doesn't look like you, make eye contact, say hello, be intentional about making everyone see, feel seen. I think that's an important step as we're talking about um, authentic diversity. And also, you reminded me this week that I am apparently the only African-American female in the area leading a predominantly white church. And so that alone has a lot of weight um, to carry. But I'm so excited that um, I get to lead with you. It's been amazing to journey with you on this process. And um, for my community in Spring Hill, they have been phenomenal um, at supporting me and just allowing me to, to lead for who I am and not because of the color of my skin. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, there's, there's obviously, when you t talk about the experiences, and I know you didn't share everything. You just picked a few things. Um, but there's obviously a lot of pain mm -hmm. there. Um, and one of the observations I had in the first service that I'll repeat here is I'll, I, I read a lot of history. And uh, within the last five or seven years, I've read a lot of history of slavery and lynching and segregation and, those, and the civil rights movement. But I read it with a little bit of a detachment. Like, that, that didn't happen in my time. You know, that's, that's, that was then, this is now. And I, th I think I'm probably representative. A lot of people in white communities do that. Like, well, that, that's not me, even though it was, my, it was my ancestors. It's not me. And that's kind of how we def deflect that. But uh, I even thought about the example, you know, we're here in Columbia. You know, there's antebellum homes everywhere. And I drive by an antebellum home and go, well, that's a beautiful home. You know, I'm glad they've got that restored and it's this beautiful place. You've got a different experience driving by that home. We've talked about that before. There's different thoughts and feelings. Oh, yeah. Um, sadness. Um, yeah. Um, like you said, it's a beautiful home, and I recognize that. But I also, when I drive by, see my people in the fields working. Sorry. Um, just like I saw them on documents for tax records. And I, I understand that... Um, their only reward for their work during that time was to be hung on trees or to be, um, to be whipped with lashes. And so, like you said, um, my experience driving by a plantation is totally different than yours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's why it's important. What I would encourage you is important to share that experience because that's something I never would have thought of. And I've lived in this area my entire life and lived in Columbia specifically for the last 15 years. And I've uh, been on many of those tours. I mean, I've been to many of those homes and, and done the tours and never considered the full history 
of that plantation. And so that's why your voice is important, your experience is important. Keep, keep telling your story. Um, I got a couple more questions because we're running out of time. But you, talked, you mentioned earlier authentic diversity. And you've talked before about there's a difference between just being diverse and authentically being diverse. What, what, what's the difference there for you? What does authentic diversity look like? Authentic diversity is having um, rela true relationships with people that don't look like you, uh, making sure that your dinner tables at your home um, are diverse. A lot of times we tell our children that, oh, everyone's equal. We all are the same no matter you know, our skin color. But children catch more what you do than what you say. And so if you look in your phone, your text messages, are there any brown people that you have authentic relationships? Or are you sharing meals with them inside or outside of your home? Um, having, um, que make, asking questions, listening. A lot of times white people will say, I'm not racist because I have a black friend. And if you don't understand that that black friend has a different experience in America because they are brown, then you have work that you have to do. As we said, it's 2020, but there is still a lot of progress that needs to be made. There, um, our experiences are different just because of the color of their skin. Um, uh, church has to begin the, the, these radical conversations. God has commanded us to do this, and I'm so excited that um, Murray Hills is taking leaps forward in that direction. And as I said earlier, we have watered down the word love to the word tolerate when it comes to issues of race, and love is an action word. Love is something that God is calling mm -hmm. us to do and not just say. Yeah, yeah, and that's... Uh like for me, that my, the personal experience for me, uh, I'll go back to Stand Together, which I've talked about it in here before, but Stand Together Fellowship um, was formed, really Trent Ogilvie kind of was the spearhead behind that, but it's black and white pastors and community leaders getting together and just having honest conversations, conversations like this, and uh, we meet the first Friday of every month, and the very first meeting I went to of Stand Together, Trent threw out the question of uh, what are the racial issues in our community? Like, let's, well, if we're going to talk about this stuff, let's talk about it. What are the racial issues in our community? And I honestly sat there going, I'm not, I'm not real sure. I'm not, you know, I, I know we've got a, a history there. There's a very really negative history, but I'm not sure what the actual issues are currently. And uh, then Kenny spoke up and brought up an issue, and, and Chris spoke up and brought up an issue. And, like, just hearing, the vo hearing Kenny and Chris and Trent and Krista and Diane and Leon and, Sharon and you and just hearing African-American voices say this is what I experience in this community this is what it's like for me in this community this is what it's like for me uh, in this country um, it gave me a, a deeper understanding and that and that's really the only way to have empathy because what happens so often is we go well that's not me that's not me and we deflect and we say you know um, we try to we get reactionary and our world, you know, social media has just made it worse and worse and worse. But as you said, the church ought to be leading the way. I mean, the church, that's why what's going on with Lipscomb is so sad. The church ought to be the safest place to have these conversations, even if we disagree. And people will say stuff and stand together that, that it's hard to hear sometimes. And I'll be thinking, you know, do I agree with that? I mean, we've had disagreements in, that, in those meetings. But we come together, we keep saying the conversation is worth it. It's worth it. Keep having the conversation. Amen. So I, I want to leave with you know what can we do because in our meeting you know tim was the one that suggested hey don't just have a conversation tell them what to do <laughs> he said you got to give some action steps oh, yeah. so if we're trying to be more intentional in our lives in creating diversity or creating more understanding and more empathy what can we do how do we do that education is definitely first as you were saying that you um read a book and it opened up your eyes to what was happening in our society i think that is key 
Um, we actually have some books for purchase in the cafe if you're mm -hmm. interested in getting started with those. Um, second is participate in authentic relationships and conversations. Um, as I said, it's not always safe for us to share our experiences because they're not always um, honored and um, held with value. And so if you want to begin having those conversations with people that don't look like you, make sure you approach those um, prayerfully and carefully and approach them saying, I want to know. I realize I don't um, know a lot when it comes to issue, racial, racial issues in America. And so um, have and begin those authentic conversations and um, let those brown people around you know that um, they are seen and heard. And last um, is stay engaged. Like you said, when the conversations get uncomfortable, um, unfortunately, it seems that issues of race have become political in our country. Mm -hmm. um, and so realize that if someone is telling you their story, it is not a political issue. It is their experience. Yeah. The, the, the best advice that I can give is that from James about everybody should be quick, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Amen. When you see an issue, when you see it in the news, and you're going to see it in the news, it happens all the time. Don't react immediately. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't believe the memes immediately. You know, just, just take a deep breath and, and listen. Listen more than you speak, um, which I think is, is so, so important. You mentioned the books. We've got them right there. We, we wanted to have some resources available if anybody wanted any. I don't know if we got any left or not. I don't know what First Service did, but they're in the cafe. And uh, I'll mention them. You can get them online if you want to. But uh, Just Mercy is one of them that we got out there. I've read this book twice and the movie's out, so if you're not a reader and you just want to go watch a movie, go watch a movie. Um, it's worth your time. It's worth your read. Uh, there's a book called Between the World and Me by uh, Tanishi Quoth. I'm not sure I'm saying his first name right. Do you know his first name? Uh, but it's, a, it's an African-American father writing to his son about his experiences today. And uh, it's really, really good read. I picked that up at a University of Tennessee Chattanooga. Um, when my daughter was touring schools, and that was a required reading for their students. And so I wanted to check that one out. Uh, the other one is Letters from a Birmingham Jail with some pastors reacting to that. I think every Christian should read Letters from Birmingham Jail, especially if you're a Christian living in the South. You should read Letters from Birmingham Jail. It's one of the most powerful um, things that Dr. King ever wrote. And then the book I'm in the middle of right now is by Dr. James Cone, uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And I'm about halfway through this book. I was hesitant to put it on here because I said I hadn't finished the book, so I don't know how good it is. But uh, wow, it's um, it's a it's a heavy read, but it's uh, it's a very convicting read. So uh, I would also re recommend Malcolm and Martin in America by Dr. James Cone. That was the first one I read of his. But anyway, those books are out there in the. Uh, cafe if you want to get a copy of them and I think Ebony emailed the Spring Hill campus sure did I hooked you up yeah yeah she emailed Spring Hill campus with all that stuff so um we need to wrap up and you suggested a good way for us to do that you're talking about the difference between love and tolerance and that love is an action tolerate is just something we passively do with one another love you have to actively pursue and so you suggested we close this service in a specific way so I want you to lead us in that yeah so um as I said love unfortunately in the church has been um watered down to mean tolerate one another when it comes to racial issues and so um, I'm excited that as I said before that Murray Hills is leading the way in having these authentic and honest conversations and so I want us to read a verse aloud together that tells us what love as action means and I, I'm praying that this um, verse will be a prayer for our church as we continue um, to move in the right direction. 
and um, that it would be uh, a prayer from our mouths to God's lips. And as you're saying this prayer, I want you to think about your community, um, those people that don't look like you, and just prayerfully ask God to help you to um, build an understanding, educate yourself, and begin authentic relationships. So as we close together, I'm going to ask that we stand and read this verse aloud together. Love is patient. Love Love is is kind. kind. It does does not not envy. envy. It does Does not not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Amen. Have a wonderful week. You guys have a great rest of the week.